Every week we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed. Today we're continuing our sermon series through the epistle, the letter of 1 John, which is almost toward the end of the New Testament. Preaching for us today is Dodds Pengra, one of our pastors. Uh, and before I read the scripture, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for this moment as we transition towards our sermon and open the letter of 1 John uh, for the second time this morning in order to hear it preached. I pray that you would speak to us clearly, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord Jesus, in a way that shapes us and changes us, leaves us a whole different group of people than we were before because of our encounter with you through your word. Thank you for our time this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Listen, this is God's word for his people. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thank you. Well, good morning to you all. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Happy 4th of July. Uh, wonderful to be with you. It is a little bit warm. I have brought a little bit of, of reinforcement uh, to the podium this morning. So pardon me as I will definitely need this. Um, today we're continuing our sermon series through the epistle of, of 1 John. The Apostle John, who is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, was very likely an old man by the time he wrote this letter, and he writes as a spiritual father to an audience that he calls his little children. And his writing, in his writing, which is really this, this epistle is very much like a poetic sermon, but, but in his writing, John provides clues about the timing of his letter. He says that it's the last hour, that the world is passing away. But, but John can't be talking about the end of a sinful world or the end of the physical universe or the last hour of human history because we, we still have all of those. We're still in all of those. Because Christ has ascended into heaven, because the Spirit has come, the new commandment that Raph preached on last week is a commandment that is being fulfilled in and through the love of Christ that is at work in our lives by His Spirit, having had the law written on our hearts. So all of that, all of that is the manifestation of the passing away of the darkness of the old age and the rising of the true light of Christ in the world. So in our text last week, 
When John talks about the darkness passing away and the true light already shining, he isn't talking about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. He's talking about the end of an old age and the beginning of a new one. He's recognizing the end of the old covenant order which Jesus predicted at length in the Gospels. So the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the animal sacrifices, the cleanliness rules, those were all things that were, were coming to an end. That's what John's talking about here. The last hour that John refers to is the last hour of the old covenant. See, there was this seismic shift taking place as the kingdom of God was expanding beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the walls of the temple, into the rest of the world. And the Christians at that time, the Christians that he writes to in this letter, they were facing persecution from outside the church. They were facing division inside the church. And so he writes this letter to offer a number of reminders and warnings and encouragements to these churches that are in crisis. As, we've, as we just read, John is really emphasizing here the familial nature of the church. The church is a family. And that reality, that, that life is actually what gives us the strength and support that we need to, to withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences around us in the world. And where we pick up is is very intriguing. So let's, let's read the, open verse in, the open, opening verses again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's a perplexing passage in many ways. I'm sure it sort of takes us off guard. We've been reading. I mean, John has been going on and on about knowing God and darkness and light and brothers and sisters and loving one another and, and all of a sudden this happens. Sort of like a lot of questions that we really could ask why is John interrupting the flow of his letter to address these groups? And why these groups in particular? Are these, are these different ways of speaking about the same people, or are they distinct categories of people? Are we talking about, is he talking about actual fathers, actual children? I mean, we know that, that John is very much a poet, and he loves symbolism, and he loves imagery. So is he talking to real fathers and children, or is he talking to someone else? Why does he address each of them twice? Why does he say the same things to fathers twice? Why are women seemingly absent from the text? We won't get to all those answers, but I really do hope that you, that as parishes, that you would dive into this text and, and truly tread out the grain, as it were, with one another and ask these questions. It's something that I love about the Bible is that it invites, God invites questions. Uh, this isn't a text that we have to worry about asking questions of it. This is our God. This is His Word. And while we won't get to all those answers, the first thing that we notice, though, is that John addresses three different groups of people, and he addresses each group twice, little children and children, fathers and young men. 
And he, he really, I mean, as we just read, he says some really important things about these groups and to these groups. The young men are associated with strength and overcoming and the word of God abiding in them. The fathers are associated with the knowledge of the one who is from the beginning, and children are associated with forgiveness and the knowledge of the father. It's incredible. Incredible to consider how John addresses the children. He says, your sins are forgiven, you know the father. That might challenge considerably what we actually think is for our children, gifts for our children in this church, in any church. It might challenge what we think is going on in Sojourn Kids or in parish life or in our homes. Our children, their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. John has used so much familial language. He uses so much familial language here and he uses it throughout his letter. He, again, he writes to his little children as the father in the faith and he tells them, this is what you all have in and from God. It's a, it's a shared familial inheritance. See, the, the church is a family. And it's very important that, that John write this now because there is, there's division within the church. There are, there are people that are pulling uh, people away from Jesus saying he's not the son of God. We need to return to the old covenant, return to the old order, keep the old order. And so he's writing to people who are being pulled apart, and he says, look, I'm writing to you, family, to you children, to you fathers, to you young men. The church is a family. Jesus is described as our eldest brother. He is the son of God. We are all sons and daughters in a household of faith. We share a common father. So if Christians are sons and daughters in relationship with a common heavenly father, then Christians are also brothers and sisters in relationship to one another. We, in Christ, we are sons and daughters, but we're also siblings. And our union with Christ runs deeper, it runs deeper than our name, our history, our blood. When we were reunited with Christ, we actually were birthed into and inherited a new family of origin. Because we were birthed into the family of the church, Christ's body. The church is family to itself. And this really has major implications for how we live as a church. I'd love for you to ask that question too in your parishes. What, what, what are the implications? If we're family, if we're siblings, what, is, what does that mean for how we should live? How we should love? What we should value? What should be important to us? What the rhythms of life should be like? I think those implications run the gamut. We'll only talk about a few here. I think we think about family and we think about how we interact and transact with the church. I think we can sometimes be too hasty in breaking fellowship with one another. We don't, we don't actually prioritize leaning into our identity as a family, and so we entertain the thought of leaving and renouncing our church long before we would ever entertain the thought of leaving or renouncing our family or, or members in our family. A number of years ago, um, Kimberly and I had a, a decision to make about switching parishes based on where we were living. There was a parish being planted right by our house, 
And we were in a parish that we loved very much. And we, we went and we asked a few people. We said, what do you, what do you think? What, what should we do? What should we do? And they had a number of, a number of responses. There was a consistent thread, though, of you should do what's best for your family. And we said, that's, that's why we're asking you. You're our family. Our family isn't just us. It's you. What do you all think is best for our family? The family is certainly central, but the family that is central is the family of the church. And if the church is a family, what, what do good families do? I, I think at the very least, they take each other seriously. In love, in thoughtfulness, in service, in importance, in sacrifice. Those who are married take the lives and needs of their single siblings seriously. I didn't mean alliteration there. I'm sorry, I just now just realizing that. Those who are married, but it's true. Those who are married take the lives and needs of their single siblings seriously. And those who are single take the lives and needs of their married siblings seriously. Just, think, just thinking about how that can manifest. If you're married, if you're single, if you're young, if you're old, if you're... <laughs> what would it be like for you as a single person to take the concerns and needs of people in your parish who are married seriously? They really need what they're asking for prayer. Or, or if you're married, taking the needs of your single brothers and sisters seriously. You really need those things. I really need to pray for you. A family that takes each other seriously. A good family owns what it has, but it shares what it owns. Good families don't walk away when things get weird or hard. They press in. There's, there's intimacy even in conflict. There's love even in disagreement. There's vulnerability even in insecurity. The young take the old seriously and, and vice versa. And good families, they, they give each other their best and they forgive one another when they don't get it. And, and I think, I mean, it, in addition to that, I mean, John really, really pushes this home, I think, here because, because the church is a family, we should also be a people with diverse levels of maturity and experience. So to use John's words, there should be little children and young men and fathers in the congregation. Each, and each one of them should be an encouragement and a ballast to, to the other. So uh, I, I think really what John is saying here is that a well-rounded body, a well-rounded family, a well-rounded church, the, the well-rounded body of Christ needs the dependence and playfulness and life enjoyed by children, children in the faith. But it also needs the vigor and fervor and strength of young men and women. And it needs the maturity and wisdom and perspective of fathers and mothers who know the one who is from the beginning. And honestly, where, two, where one or two of these are lacking, the church will be stunted in various ways. A, a church full of only young men and women would be vigorous, but potentially unwise. 
A church full of only old men and old women would be wise, but potentially without zeal. And with only children, if our church was made up of only children, joyous and dependent, but without strength, without perspective. See, the church ought to be an intergenerational body formed and shaped by each of these generational constituencies in the faith. It's the very, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons that we, why we have multiplied and want to continue multiplying intergenerational neighborhood parishes, because we don't want to organize our community by life stage. Because in, in doing so, we would become incomplete, anemic communities without the contributions of everyone, from the youngest child to young men and women to, to older saints. In the world we live in, the world that John is calling us not to love, I mean, this, even what, I, what we just explained, like, that, that's very countercultural because the, the world that John is calling us not to love overvalues people in their prime of life. There's a lot of value, a lot of attention, a lot of support for those between the ages of 25 and 55. And on the far ends of that, we're, we're, we're less likely to count that as valuable life. Our world and our culture highly value the young, but we undervalue children, we undervalue the elderly. But the Bible commands respect for elders, reverence for elders, for those with gray hair in our midst, those with long life experience who've seen trial and difficulty and have continued to trust the Lord, those who are, those who are without protection and need our protection. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. And the church is called to be a society within our society that values the contributions of everyone, regardless of age, regardless of wealth, regardless of competencies, regardless of ethnicity. Because when things are, are working properly within the body of Christ, nobody gets undervalued in the church. Church is a family. Why does that matter? Why, why does it matter? Why? Because we can say sometimes this church is family, and that just, it, it, maybe it just feels like an emotional just tag. It, it should be something that we just feel. But what is it, why does it matter? Well, I, I think there are many reasons, but John moves here from addressing the church as a family to warning them to not love the world. So in opposition to the family of the church is what John calls the world. Opposed to the love that characterizes those dwelling in light is the love of the world and the things of the world. And, and that's why church's family matters it, it, here in particular is because if we're actually going to resist and withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world around us, if we're going to swim upstream against the culture to be a countercultural family, we need to belong to a strong community. We need church as family. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, that's John writing. 
The same John that wrote in his own gospel, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But here in 1 John, he tells the church, do not love the world. Okay, which is it? In some places, the world refers to the created order that in Genesis chapter 1, God pronounced good. But in other places, the world refers to humanity organized in opposition to God and his vision for the kingdom. God so loved the world that he sent his son, and the son so loved the world too because he and the father are one. But what was the character of Jesus' love for the world? How did Jesus love our world? How does Jesus love our world? If by love we mean total unconditional acceptance, then actually Jesus does not love the world. Total unconditional acceptance is, that's, that's our society's definition of love, but, but that's not Jesus' definition. Jesus so loved the world that he died in order that the world would be changed into something better. Jesus died for the world as it was, but not to leave it that way. Jesus died to recreate the world into something new, into something far better. Jesus so loved the world that he resisted its, its temptations and its seductions. He so loved the world that he refused to be conformed to it. He so loved the world that he purposely walked against the grain of its systems and powers and influences and values. Jesus so loved the world by opposing it and challenging it. Why? Because he had a vision for the kingdom of God on the earth and to the degree that what he saw didn't measure up, he was willing to say so, and he was willing to demonstrate a better way. And that took, that took courage. It took courage then. It takes courage now. For John's immediate audience, the world referred to the old covenant system that stood in opposition to the Messiah. It, it was the old covenant system that, that was rejecting Jesus as God's son and stood in opposition to the victory of Christ and the progress of the kingdom. For us, when we think of the world, I, th I think it can refer to any religious, cultural, political, or economic system that is organized in opposition to God and his vision for the kingdom. What is racism if not another form of opposition to the kingdom of God? Remember, in, in John's context, the Judaizers that were leading the church astray were followers of Jesus who wanted to keep the old system. They wanted to keep the old covenant. Racism takes us back to an old covenant system that divides us according to what we look like and where we come from and elevates one over the other. Jim Crow laws created a system of clean and unclean, exactly like Jew and Gentile. But racism is, is much more than just divisive. It's anti-Christ. Anytime we're tempted to treat people according to the corrupt standards of this world, 
We're reverting to an outdated system. We're falling back into darkness, forgetting who God and our family are and failing to live in the new world that Jesus has established, that he has created through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. A world of unity and harmony and holiness and wholeness and international, international shalom. And of all the institutions on the earth, the church is responsible, responsible for stewarding that vision, God's vision for the world. And specifically, John says that there are three aspects of the world that we are not to love. Let's read verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Incidentally, I don't think it's coincidence that these verses have a kinship with Genesis 3.6. Let me just read that really quickly because I find it very interesting. Genesis 3, 6 says this, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, desires of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. The desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life were awakened and tested long ago in the garden. Okay. What are the desires of the flesh, though? I think, th I think this just refers to an excessive desire for otherwise good things. Food and drink are good things, but the excessive desire for food and drink is a sin that we call gluttony. We could apply the same principle to clothing or shelter or transportation or alcohol or any good and pleasing gift that God can become all-consuming if we don't care, if we don't take care to enjoy it in moderation. What about the desires of the eyes? According to St. Augustine, the desires of the eyes include not only the seduction of beautiful things, but also the fascination, our fascination, with horrible things. So, we, we succumb to the desires of the eyes when we look at a sultry image, but we also succumb to the desires of the eyes when we slow down to take, the look, to take a look at the wreckage of a, of a terrible car accident. The lust of the eyes includes just a vain curiosity. And lastly, the, the pride of life, or, the, or, or what I was also translated as the boastfulness of life. What does John mean by that? This refers to, to the excessive desires for excellence and status, accomplishment, honor, reputation. It, it really is, it's the desire to be an object of attention. In our day, John would almost certainly rebuke our celebrity culture, both, both inside and outside the church. Or, or he might point out that all the advertisements in, in your social media feed are designed, designed to promote the pride of life in all of us. They're designed to undermine your, con your contentment and make you think that having their product will, will give you something, some kind of status, some kind of attention, some kind of importance. 
maybe even in a simpler way to put this is, if I have X, then I will finally get the attention and status that I need. John seems to think the world we're called to resist is fundamentally a collection of various desires. And that's, that's exactly what culture is. That's exactly what culture is made up of. Culture is the collection of shared dreams and desires and aspirations and, and lusts of a people. That's what comprise desires. The world, our world, is both constituted by those lusts and desires, but, it, but it, according to John, it also produces them. So the world that he's talking about is made up of desires, and it produces new ones. And so John hints that we should evaluate the world not only on the basis of what, of what we just see that it's doing, but also on the basis of what it wants, what it desires, and what desires it promotes. Now, it's important for us to say this. He's not saying that we should despise creation. We should not. We should love azaleas and manatees and sunsets and the astros, maybe even in particular. There it is, okay. We should love Annie Leibovitz's photography and Japanese gardens and Taj Mahal and Catcher in the Rye and, you know, fajitas, and <laughs> any original score by Hans Zimmer. Like, we should. We should love, them for, we should love those things for, for what they are. We don't have to cancel our, our Apple TV Plus subscriptions. But as we participate in any of those things, in all of those things, we should take care to understand the desires that are embodied by those things and the desires that those things promote. We, we really need to care about who we are becoming as individuals and who we are becoming as a family. We, we, you, it's, it is absolutely permissible for you to watch Netflix. But, but it's wise to ask ourselves, what kind of person does Netflix want me to be? Maybe Netflix wants me to just to binge watch all day long. Maybe that's what they really want for me. <laughs> How do the videos I watch shape my desires? What, what are the desires that fuel the existence of Netflix, and how are those desires distorting the way that I relate to God, to the world, to, 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 to other people? Is that the kind of person that my king wants me to become? Is, is that the kind of person that the kingdom needs me to become? You can, you can keep your smartphone, but ask the same questions. What do app developers, what, what, are they, what kind of person do they want me to be? What are the, how is my phone shaping my desires? How is it inspiring and shaping my desires? Is that the kind of person that my king wants me to become? Is that the kind of person that the kingdom needs me to become? And we, it, truly, we may turn quickly away from pornography, but what about advertisements that promote comfort and luxury, ease of life, or a particular kind of income? What, what about ads that really encourage you to think of yourself as the center of the universe, as the most important person to consider? 
What about songs that encourage autonomy or songs that stroke our, our selfish pride or, or songs that encourage us to act by our own wisdom because it's us against the world. We don't need anybody else's wisdom. We must have our wits about us as a family. Paul says in Philippians 4, finally, brothers, brothers, family, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our desire should be desire for fellowship with God and Christ, and by extension, our fellowship with one another. We should desire righteousness, wisdom and maturity. We should desire the praise that comes from God. And we should resist anything and everything that threatens that fellowship with him or the fellowship that we share with one another. John presents us with two options. We cannot love both God and the world. We have to either love God or love the world. So rather than the desires of the flesh, rather than hungering for those things, we hunger and thirst for the bread of life. Rather than the desires of the eyes, rather than feeding those desires, we feast our eyes upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our nourishment. And rather than the pride of life, we seek the path of humility and wisdom a path which leads to true glory. John says this in, in verse 13 and 14 in, on two different occasions. He says this to, yeah. He says, you have overcome the evil one. The, the verb there is in the perfect tense, which means that this overcoming has already happened. Our victory over evil is, is already accomplished. As we withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world around us, we can, we can do so knowing that our victory over evil is not being deferred. <laughs> it's not in the distant future. Our victory over evil has already happened in Jesus. We're engaged in a battle that has been won, and we need to remember that as we currently continue to fight. And not just fight on our own, but fight together. To fight as a family. The world is powerless against such a family. The world is powerless against such a family that refuses to love it. The world, as John terms it, is powerless against a family of people who, st who decide instead to give their love to God and to one another, not to the world. As John says in chapter 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's already won the victory. And we who abide in the word of God, we who persevere through trial together, arms locked, side by side, as a family, we will share in that victory now and into eternity. So my brothers and sisters, young and old, my dear family, will you pray with me, please?
Our Father, Lord, we are your sons and daughters, young, little, old, all of us, all of us here in Christ, members of one another, Lord, knit together by the work of Christ and the indwelling of your Spirit, held together in Christ, Lord, being made new in Christ. Lord, just as you are remaking the world, we have been remade and are being remade. Would you make us such a family as this? A family who takes each other seriously. A family a resilient family guards each other Lord, from the the corrupt desires of the world and at the same time loves the world the way Christ loves the world, longs for it, groans for it, groans in jealousy for people to know you, for people to join your family, for people to join our family, for people to be welcomed and loved and Lord, known and enjoyed and valued and, God, that's, that's the new covenant. That's the kingdom. Come, come, like Isaiah 55, come, eat and drink for free. Or would you make us into this family? Do you have mercy on us where we fail, where we are failing? Build us up. Build us up in love and knowledge from the smallest child to the most elderly all across. We might be this intergenerational family loving one another, living in the light. We love you. We need you. Please, please help us, we pray. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.